If you have your Bible, um, open it to the book of Isaiah, or if you listen to Don Carson earlier, Isaiah <laughs> chapter 6. He didn't say the word Isaiah this morning, but I love it when he does. Um, we're going to be looking at, uh, at a template for gospel-centered worship, is what we're spending time on this afternoon. I want our time to begin in London, England. 1644, where a group of seven Baptist pastors gathered together and wrote the first London Confession of Faith. And with this statement, they were saying to one another and to the government that they would not conform to the worship practices mandated by the government, but would worship in light of the Word of God. At the center of this free church movement was corporate worship. Corporate worship is what they were fighting for, what they believed in, worship governed by the book rather than the crown. So the free church tradition that we come from fought to worship God in purity and simplicity, free from any state regulation, free from any man-made book, solely by Scripture alone. So it was this movement... The free church movement that put preaching in its rightful place. It was this movement that gave to the church its song. And it was this movement that taught the church how to pray from the heart. And so here we sit today in a free church tradition. We have no mandate for how we worship. Unless I'm wrong. Anybody have a mandate for how your church worships? No, you don't. We're free from those things. So how should we steward this freedom? This is a freedom that we've been given by the Lord. So how should we be good stewards of this freedom of free church worship? The driving question that I want to ask us this afternoon is what is your theological vision for the church gathered? Or rather, what is your theological vision for gathered worship? Likely you have developed thoughts on singing. Who has a passionate view on singing in this room? You know you do. A passionate view. Likely you've thought about liturgy. Likely you've thought about what you want your church to look like and how it worships. But I think it's the the duty of pastors, of leaders of worship to both articulate and to model what this vision looks like, casting vision, building culture, structuring our gatherings in ways that bring glory to Jesus and joy to people. Now, I've been very careful to use the word liturgy so far. How many of you, by show of hands, call your gathering or use the word liturgy in your church? And how many of you don't? Okay. This will be quite interactive, so do stick with me. Um, I'm careful to use the word liturgy. The reason is I'm a PhD student at Southern Seminary and I'm studying Charles Spurgeon and I'm afraid of him. (laughs) Listen to why. Where in the writings of the apostles meet we with the bare idea of a liturgy? Whence shall our help come? Certain weaklings have said, Let us have a liturgy. Rather than seek divine aid, they will go down to Egypt for help. Let that just sink in for a moment. 
That's a big statement. Rather than be dependent upon the Spirit of God, they pray by a book. For my part, if I cannot pray, I would rather know it and groan over my soul's barrenness until the Lord again visit me with fruitfulness of devotion. If you are filled with the Spirit, you will be glad to throw off all formal fetters that you may commit yourself to the sacred current to be borne along until you find waters to swim in. Spurgeon had some feisty thoughts on liturgy. Now let me just now critique him, if I might. Spurgeon also had a liturgy. Every one of our churches have a liturgy. There is a, an orderness to what we do when we come together as the people of God, right? And so as those who are entrusted with church leadership, there's many tensions in view with what we do when we gather together as the people of God. Who is the audience of that meeting? What are the values of that meeting? All of us have been um, stewarded, those of us in leadership, with, with writing a liturgy, if you'd be so brave. All of us, though, week after week as we meet, are practicing some form of liturgy as the people of God. There's a liturgical resurgence in the worship practices of the American church. And, um, and some of the conversation sounds um, I'm very thankful for. Uh, in insofar as we want our gatherings to be intentionally ordered with, uh, with pastoral theological considerations. But also there's some, there's some um, movement away from the center where we start ascribing to a liturgy what only the gospel can do. A liturgy cannot change your life. Only the Holy Spirit of God can do that. We can be, um, there's a new kind of Phariseeism where we can create our liturgy and then pat ourselves on the back thinking we've done such a fantastic job. Better than the church down the street. Look how gospel-centered our liturgy is. Those people, lacking. So you can see how quickly we can start trusting in, in, um, in our own practices rather than sufficiently in the Word of God. Uh, there's been new books that have been very helpful in, in pushing us to think through our gatherings in a strategic way. If you're not familiar with Brian Chappell's book, uh, Christ-Centered Worship, uh, it's very helpful. It contains a survey of historical liturgies and also teaches uh, how we can create an intentional order based on various biblical patterns and types that we see in Scripture. We're going to look at one of those in just a moment. Uh, my friend Mike Cosper's book, Rhythms of Grace. Has anyone read that book, Rhythms of Grace? Okay, Mike's book is very helpful addition to the conversation. So let me ask a question to the room. This is rhetorical. What should order our liturgy? What foundation should our gatherings be built on? What framework can we construct to worship God together as his people? I think the only foundation strong enough, the only framework worthy enough, is the gospel of Jesus communicated in the word of God. So all of Christian worship should be built on um, and saturated with the word of God and should clearly re-articulate and point us to the glory of Christ in the gospel. Spurgeon was correct. When we look at scripture, we don't find a liturgy. Jesus didn't leave us a worship book to follow. 
John 4 um, is all he gives us, that worship must be done in spirit and truth. And Paul doesn't say in his letters, sing some old songs and then sing some new ones and have announcements, preach 45 minutes, sing once more, and then go to lunch. That liturgy is nowhere in Scripture. When Paul talks about worship, he says, Therefore, I urge you, in view of God's mercy, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Jesus doesn't leave us a worship book. Paul doesn't leave us a worship book. But while there's not actual um, an account of liturgy to be followed in the Scripture, I wanted to come back and say, most all of our current worship practices are modeled for us in Scripture. There's the reading of the text, singing, communion, baptism, church discipline, ordination, all of the commissioning of new missionaries being sent, all of these things are modeled for us, seen in Scripture alone. And if you hold to the regulative principle, how many of you don't know what the regulative principle is? Okay, wonderful. So the regulative principle is uh, in, a, in the Reformed tradition, a doctrine that says we will only do what Scripture clearly commands us to do in worship. So that would be... Um, set against the normative principle. So the regulative principle was held by John Calvin. The normative principle was first articulated by Martin Luther, who says anything the Bible doesn't uh, strictly prohibit, we can do it. Anything else that the scripture doesn't say we can't do, we can do those things in our gatherings. And so here we are still in the same tension. How do we honor God with our gathering? How do we ensure that scripture is present, that the gospel is clear, when the people of God gather together. In Scripture, we find examples that teach us about the rhythms of of the gospel and how they lead us to worship. There's this pattern of gospel-centered worship throughout the Scripture. Isaiah 6 is one. That's where we'll be looking in just a few moments. Deuteronomy chapter 5, 2 Chronicles 5 through 7. Uh, Romans 11 through 15, Revelation 4 through 21 is this long arc of what the gospel is and how it, how it can um, inform what we do as the people of God. So through the lens of the gospel, we learn to see congregational worship. That means preaching, singing, confession, prayer, scripture reading, communion, baptism, not as ritual, but as a, as a regular opportunity for our eyes to freshly behold the glory of God in the gospel. That's what corporate worship becomes for us. So in light of this kind of uh, setup, I want us to look together at Isaiah 6 as a template for gospel-centered worship. That's right, to uh, help inform our liturgy, I want us to look further back than the day of the announcements and four songs and the 45-minute sermon, to look back 2,750 years ago, into this unique moment that one prophet receives a vision from God, not as a descriptive text, uh, as a prescriptive text, but what we can draw from a descriptive text. We will see side by side how Isaiah 6 and one form of liturgy has four distinct movements, and here they are. So I'm calling this gathering around the gospel, and here are these these four movements. God... man Christ and response God man Christ and response 
So with all of the ways to organize a gathering, and there are many, uh, I would commend to you again Brian Chappell's book, Christ-Centered Worship. He presents uh, the Genevan Liturgy, uh, Luther's Liturgy, Robert Rayburn, who's a Presbyterian in the 70s, who created his own liturgy that many PCA churches are using today. Where these four movements come from is a simple articulation of the gospel. Uh, a pastor from Louisville, Kentucky, Third Avenue Baptist named Greg Gilbert wrote a book called What is the Gospel? And these are the four movements of that. God, man, Christ, response. Uh, Mike Cosper's four movements to the liturgy that he proposes are very similar. Uh, so th- these are not new thoughts. We're all simply trying to see how we can faithfully align the gathering of God's people around the gospel. That's, that's what this is all after. So uh, let's look first at Isaiah chapter 6. And we'll start with this first movement, God. In the, king, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. We'll stop right there. This is where, specifically the liturgy that I lead, this is where it begins. It begins with God. It begins with God. With a theocentric view of the gathering of God's people. God is the reason we gather Anything less than that is not high enough. We don't merely gather for the sake of evangelism. We don't even merely gather for the sake of discipleship. We must first gather for the glory of God. And from that aim, allow all of the benefits and secondary um, means of why we gather to find their rightful place. But God's glory is at the center of why we meet. Why we begin here also is because God, the gospel begins with God. We heard this morning from Ephesians chapter 2, God finds us dead in sin and brings us to life in Christ. What's going on here with Isaiah is all of a sudden his eyes are made aware of who God is. His glory is unleashed, is unveiled. And we see this, this call and response happening with the angels. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. So when people walk into our church on Sunday morning, that's the first thing I want them to hear. There is a holy, eternal God who, as Dr. Carson said this morning, is full of wrath and love and His glory is like no other. We need more awe in our gathered worship. We need more holy reverence in our gathered worship. This is what Isaiah is seeing. The smoke is happening and the foundations of the threshold are shaking because God is speaking. So what this looks like practically for us is a call to worship, which we, we heard this morning. So this morning I started just our, our gathering, which wasn't a very normal gathering, but with Psalm 95, 1 through 5. Uh, and that's what we're having God call his people to worship. That's the first thing is God moves toward us. So here we could have a call to worship from Scripture. Uh, This could be uh, the hymns that we sing here are going to be hymns of of adoration, of um, the characteristics of God. 
his attributes, his nature, hymns of praise, mirroring what we're seeing here from the angelic beings calling out, holy, holy, holy. Do you remember the first song we sang this morning? Yes. Didn't have to stretch for that one. It was just right there. Um, and so this is where I want our, this is what I want to be the very first thing our people experience when they come into our gatherings, to be reminded of God's holiness, of his greatness, of his faithfulness, of his steadfast love. That he's the God who has not changed this week. The God who will not change next week. The God who is steadfast through all things. How many of you have a difficulty getting your people to church on time? <laughs> Show yourselves. Yeah, so this is epidemic for us. And so um, I finally taught on, on the, the parameters, the framework of our gathering uh, maybe a year ago now. And um, I, I was in the middle of preaching through this text, and I had to come out from behind the pulpit because I said, hey, we need to do this. We need to have a talk. I'm not preaching right now. We just need to have a conversation. I need to say this, and you need to hear it. Be at church on time. And here's why. When you miss God calling his people to worship, you miss a lot. That's what's happening. Did you know every time God's word is read among his people, God is speaking to us. That's more important than going for an extra cup of coffee coming in. And I want our people to have a hunger for that. I have four kids, okay? So I realize Sunday morning. My wife realizes <laughs> Sunday morning. And so, I, and I say that filled with grace toward our people and understanding, but when, you know, you start a service and there's 40 people in there and then 10 minutes later there's 400, there's a problem. We're missing God's transcendence. We, this is not throwaway for us. Everything we do in the gathering of God's people is, should be intentionally ordered and should be with a sense of gravity and importance. So here, we're doing a call to worship of some sort in hymns. Uh, these kind of prayers, these kind of prayers, I'm sorry, I have to write at this weird angle. But these prayers are um, prayers of praise and adoration for God, who he is, and what he has done. So there's our first movement, God. Let's keep reading in our text. So remember what's happening. Isaiah is in the middle of a vision. He's seeing uh, this beatific vision this vision of god's glory just unleashed before his eyes right he's seeing angelic beings calling out the holiness of god and let's look together at his response verse five and i said woe is me for i am lost for i am a man of unclean lips and i dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And my hope is every week when we gather together that our eyes see the King, the Lord of hosts. And that reality drives us to an understanding of our need for the continual, steady grace of God. So the second movement in, in our gathering is man. And in here, we are confessing our sin. We are repenting. We are um, singing songs of how desperate we are for the need of God's grace. 
We are reading scripture that would articulate the same thing. We are singing this truth. If you don't have any songs that articulate sinfulness, it's time to open up the hymn book. We should be singing of our sin and Jesus' sufficient mercy. Or we're not singing um, the breadth of the gospel. It's not enough just to revel here and skip to the good stuff. We have to come face to face with our humanity, with our sin regularly. So we do an organized time of confession of sin in our church every week. How many of you practice some sort of confession of sin at your churches? Okay, let me tell you why we do this. It's quite possible there are people at our church that we've not seen in an entire week and perhaps they've gone a full seven days without once repenting of their own sin, confessing their sin. And I want to provide a place in the wealthiest county in Texas where we come together and just confess our need. And this is where this is smack dab in the middle of our liturgy. This fights against us. This fights against our self-sufficiency. It fights against our uh, forgetfulness of our need of God's grace. It puts it front and center right with us. God is holy and we are sinful. Now that's not the whole picture, but we're not done with the story. There's so many ways that we do this. Um, There's just four of them right there. This is not the same thing for us week after week. Um, And hear me say, if you're not in charge of of your church's uh, liturgy, um, and even if you are, you shouldn't show up Sunday and start doing all of these things. Because if you're on staff, that might be your last day. (laughs) And uh, if you're a church member, well, your pastor doesn't want to hear your passionate opinion uh, all at once. I'm just telling you reasons why I do this. I mean, at the end of this, I'm going to help frame this in a local church context. Right now, I'm just presenting to you one way that one guy orders a liturgy in one church in this little state far, far away. So there it is. Who is God? The holy, eternal, uncreated one. Who is man? Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. That's your spouse that you're talking about there. Verse 6. Now we're transitioning from man to Christ. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he'd taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Oh, well that sounds really familiar, doesn't it? So far, all of a sudden we're not almost 3,000 years in history, this is the experience that us as Christians have experienced, right? You have here this type in Isaiah of what Christ would do in its fullness, atone for our sin. Notice it's not Isaiah moving toward it. He's seen God, he's confessed sin, and now God is doing the full work of atonement. What's Isaiah doing? Nothing. He's a recipient of this atoning work, just like we are the recipients of this atoning work. So this angel crawls off uh, his his work and, and grabs these tongs and takes this burning coal and touches his mouth. 
And in that moment, the guilt of Isaiah is lifted. Do you realize week after week, people in our churches gather together and they are walking in with a blanket of guilt and shame. And when those are Christians, that's a blanket that, doesn't know, that no longer belongs to them. Because Christ has paid in full the penalty for our sin. And people need to be reminded of that. I need to be reminded of that weekly. And so here, here's the great banquet feast in the middle of our liturgy, Christ. So for us, this is where we put our sermon. Which about Christological preaching, Christ-centered preaching. This is why we put the sermon here. Spurgeon once said, that, as all roads in England lead to London, so all passages lead to Christ. And the sermon is part of this movement. We also sing about Christ. These are songs about the substitutionary atonement of Christ. The substitutionary atonement we just, or the atonement we just read of, we sing the substitutionary atonement of Jesus. We sing of His work on the cross regularly allowing it to penetrate through. And here's the thing. If you're singing through these movements, all of your songs are not about the cross of Christ, but we must be singing the cross of Christ. It does not change. So here we're singing uh, Holy, Holy, Holy. Let's just evaluate that song through this gospel-centered kind of a a lens. Is the song Holy, Holy, Holy gospel-centered? Think about it. No mention of Christ, no mention of redemption. So is it gospel centered? You're all afraid to say yes right now. <laughs> the answer is yes. Why? Because that's not the whole story. That's not its task. So let me tell you, as a hymn writer, um, in uh, 2002 is when Keith and Stu wrote uh, In Christ Alone. Okay? And here we have this fresh expression of a gospel hymn in every sense of the word. Okay, so as a hymn writer myself, I think, oh, this is what I need to be doing. Every hymn must tell the life, the death, the resurrection, the return of Christ. That is so short-sighted. The scripture is replete with all kinds of themes and contours and colors and expressions of the gospel. Right here, just the transcendence and holiness of God, that's where the gospel begins. So yes, holy, holy, holy is a If you want to use that language, if you must, it is a gospel-centered hymn. It doesn't mention the completed work of Christ, but not every song is meant to do that. Um, Here, we're praying a prayer of illumination. Now, who is that prayed to? The Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. But what we're specifically doing in this prayer of illumination is asking the Holy Spirit to show us Christ in the Scripture. That's historically what a prayer of illumination has done. And that's exactly what we're doing. We're asking the Holy Spirit here to show us Christ in the passage being (coughs) preached. We're reveling in the atonement. All right, now we're bridging to this fourth movement, response. Verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? 
And then he said, here I am, send me. Now, preachers love to stop right there because that's really romantic. But I just want you to see the message of Isaiah. He says, and he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes. Lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. He goes on to show how difficult this task is going to be for Isaiah. So in the response here that God gives to Isaiah in this commissioning that happens, there are two things. There's both um, the content of the message and the commissioning of the message. The commission is where we'll begin. Isaiah volunteers, he says, here am I, send me. And God sends him in the same way that we have been sent as a people. So in this final movement of response, um, this is generally, the prayer is ending, and this is a prayer of consecration. Prayer of consecration. This is asking, God, everything that we've heard, may it be applied to our hearts and to our thoughts. Allow the truths that have been taught to us to change us through and through. Prayer of consecration. I call this the hymn of response. Sorry, I've got two blue markers. This one needs to go away. Uh, a hymn of response. This is us singing. God, whatever you've spoken to us through your word, let us rightly respond. This is also where I put baptism and communion. Um, communion historically has been placed at the end of the gathering. How many of you have communion at the end of your gathering? Okay, anybody have it in the beginning or the middle? Okay. Okay, we're going to come back to that. Just hold on to those thoughts. So baptism and communion is where we put that. This is how we respond to the truth is by... Um, you know, people throughout the book of Acts, when Paul's sharing the gospel with someone, they become Christians, and then we see them later being baptized. Uh, we see baptism as a response. Communion with Christ is a response to the truths of his word. And so that falls in line with what we're doing in this responding. And then the benediction. Is the final movement for us. And this is where God's people are sent back out on mission. So the same God who has called together his people for, for this gathering is now sending them back out on mission. The same way that we see Isaiah sent with a challenging message to his culture, which is the theme of our day today. So let me say, there are many ways to ensure that the gospel is clear in our gatherings. This is one way. So um, I've been asked multiple times by multiple like publishing companies and so forth to actually write a book on this, and I, I won't do it. And let me tell you why. Remember where we started? We come from a free church tradition. So let me tell you, if Jesus is being preached in your church, if Jesus is being sung to and about in your church, if people are praying to Jesus in your church, I'm happy. That's what makes me a Baptist. 
Are we singing the glory of the Father through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit? I'm happy. Are we preaching the glory of God through the Son by the power of the Spirit? I'm happy. So at age 38, after having done this for 23 years now, um, in many years with no organization, how many of you remember the days where the, the whole liturgy is just, you, the, you go from fast songs to slow song to sermon, slow song, go home. Yeah, so the, all this does is give a little bit more bones to that, right? I, I'm not, this isn't, this isn't earth, this isn't earth shattering. This is not a new thought. This is an old, old thought. And I'm always looking for ways to contextualize this because at, at work in my heart as a pastor is wanting people who don't, who don't have life in Christ to clearly see the joy and life that's found in Jesus. So I don't want things to be distracting to that. And for those who are mature Christians, I want them to come and be fed and nourished deeply by our time of worship together. For those who are hurting, I want them to come and find healing and respite and renewal and repair in our gathering. And I know of no stronger balm than the gospel of Jesus. I know of no stronger message than the gospel of Jesus. I know nothing deeper than the gospel of Jesus. So for us, everything collapses on the gospel of Jesus. This is one way that we can organize our gatherings. If we're going to talk about gospel centrality and not allow that theme to touch the gathering of God's people, um, I I think we're missing a a critical piece. And so as churches, I don't want to outgrow and think, well, we've, we've exhausted that. We've already talked about those things. No, let's keep talking about those things. Let's not outgrow our need for hearing the good news of Christ. Uh, even in something as simple and as free as our worship practices. So what I'd like to do in this, in this, the next time, you know, speaking at a conference like this is so challenging, especially in a breakout session, just not knowing who's in the room, what questions are bubbling up in you, what questions you're asking as a church. Yeah, you're here for a reason today. You came to be strengthened, to be taught, to be encouraged, to be reminded. And I want to best serve you. I, I, I was talking to Dan earlier. I almost wanted to just do an entire Q&A. Like, hey, what are, we, what are we walking through? And how can we together as, as the body of Christ serve one another, encourage one another? So we're going to transition now to a time of questions. And how much time do we have? 2.30. Till 2.30. That's when I have to leave this room. Yeah. Is that right? Great. We have 25 minutes. At least we can stay much longer. <laughs> Just kidding. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Yes. And hear me say before you do, can I just say something like, um, I'm so grateful for God's grace. I'm still f- working and wrestling through this right here, uh, and what it looks like to be faithful in our worship ba- in our in our worship practices. Um, and so I, I I'm not an expert in this subject. I am a fellow journeyman. And so if you'll be gracious with me in answering, yeah. So um, the first thing is, is like, you guys have Sunday school at your church or no? So right now we do community groups throughout the week. So like for young kids? We do, yeah. So do you try to follow this pattern so that it's consistent for the church? Or are you ignoring that? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, so actually our kids' ministry actually does have the same contour. Yeah. It does. Specifically, even thinking through the Christ piece. So our kids use the Gospel Project curriculum, uh, which is pretty great. And so they're, they're getting that steady dose. But yeah, this is absolutely where they start. And, and this kind of is the arc of their gathering as well.
follow up to that? Well, it's just a different question, but I'll wait for a Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So for, you know, honestly, for kids or for youth, I I wouldn't. Um, we're working for a, a culture that's disciple making. It's thoroughly disciple making, and so I care about disciples being made primarily. This is one tool, and so I would only apply this actually to the gathering. So this is. There's all kinds of of things being written on liturgy today that I think push it further than it's meant to actually serve. The word liturgy is from uh, the Greek word lituro, which just means to serve. So if you call your ser- your gathering a worship service, you're calling it a liturgy, just in English. Yeah, and so um, I, I I don't I don't worry too much about that. So we're planting a church. So all summer, I'll be hanging out with students, uh, and I won't worry about this. We'll be having a lot of fun together, and opening God's Word together, and praying for one another. So it, it won't be, I, I don't, I, so these kind of questions, this is why I fear to actually even write on these things, because I don't think this is meant to be law. This is not new law for us. Jesus has set us free. It, it's not, it's, uh, I just think, go back to John 4. Jesus said, no, this is about spirit and truth, not the place that you'll do. And so I, I think liturgy can quickly become two new mountains that people argue over. And Jesus is saying, no, no, it's in me where worship exists. So I wouldn't feel, don't feel burdened. You have to do any of this with students. Disciple students, point them to Christ. Yeah. But the intentionality, I think, is what's critical there. So keep thinking that way. And even with, with kids, we want to keep thinking critically and intentionally with how we disciple them. What else? Yeah. That question is a little bit of a, uh, I mean, it's a little bit off topic, but more back to songwriting. Um, what techniques, if any, did you use to strengthen your um, your hymn style songwriting? Yeah, I read um, I read old hymnals every day. Uh-huh. That's what I do. <coughs> yeah, every day. I would commend to you um, Isaac Watts, Psalms, Hymns, and Spiritual Songs. Actually, through Doxology and Theology, we republished that a year or two ago. It's a beautiful copy, so you should get that. Um, I read Watts a lot of days. Spurgeon's Hymnal has been very helpful for me. I've been working in it for two years now, and um, it's wonderful. Yeah, because it's not just one man's perspective. Spurgeon's using all kinds of writers from various denominations, um, over a course of time. So it's, it's, a, it's a much um, broader breadth. And so, yeah, for those of you trying to write songs for the church, especially through this gospel centrality um, value, I think, I think seeing how people have done this in the past is helpful. We didn't invent church songwriting in the 70s. <laughs> I know you knew that. I just want to remind us. Yeah, yeah, that's helpful. What else? Hey. I don't mean to throw you a fastball, but uh, how would strengthen a belief in the real presence on the first week around uh, communion? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So, um, I've already shown my card and told you that I was a Baptist, but I do believe in the real presence of Christ. 
um, in the elements. And um, so it's interesting. So early English particular Baptists actually saw the presence of Christ in the entire gathering. And they would be very comfortable even using that term real presence of Christ. So in singing, so even calling singing a sacrament, calling preaching a sacrament. Um, and so what's, what's interesting and, and what makes this very complex is there, are, there is a rhythm of revelation and response throughout this entire thing, right? So God reveals himself and the response is praise, adoration. God shows us our humanity and sinfulness and our response is confession of sin, repentance. God shows us the glory of Christ. Our, our response is, is expositional listening and uh, submission to Christ. God sends us, and these are our responses to that. But you, whatever your doctrine on the presence of Christ in a gathering would not affect, I don't think, anything. If you want to follow up on that, I mean, I'm, I'll be around. Yeah, but I don't see that as any, as any issue. Um, you know, the command of Scripture is, uh, is as often as you get together. Right? As you get together, remember me. And so there's not an order of what happens there. The reason I put it here is because of the lens through which I see the meeting. So if I came to your church and it was um, at a different place in, in, in the service, I, I, w- I wouldn't be happy. Yeah. It's walking in obedience to the, to the command of of remembering um, through the ordinance, I think is the critical piece. Yeah, because I don't, I don't have any like, personal conviction about remembering at all or something like that. I mean, mm-hmm. that doesn't, um, yeah, I don't know if there might be other reasons or places if there, if there is purpose behind intentionally placing it before the sermon being used afterwards. Yeah, I don't know. If y'all do that, I would just ask if that's an intentional move. So the earliest churches all practice communion afterward. Um, as a matter of fact, if you're going through, um, if you're a catechumen, if you're in the process of becoming a Christian, waiting to be baptized, you would have to leave while the Christians then took communion. You'd be dismissed. Um, and so generally that has been the order of worship from the earliest accounts that we have. Um, but that's not enough of a reason to do it. But it is, I, I think, you know, it's important to consider history uh, but to rely solely on scripture. Listening to uh, <coughs> some services, I was just thinking when the pain falls, you saw the pain. Was that today? I'm hoping to preach through my hymns. Yeah. 
actually. Moeller, I was at a thing with Moeller, and he said, um, he said, it's not that the songs being written today are, are not right. They can't even be wrong. <laughs> Hold on. Give it time. Yeah. You see? What he's saying is they just don't say anything, so it can't be wrong. I don't know. I, I think it's, it's easy to... Um, Yeah, we want our hymns to be robust and theological and also create incredible joy in the hearts of people. Amen. And that, that includes a, a steady flow of new truths to be meditating on and enough space to adequately respond to them. So that's the task of the hymn writer. I actually heard someone preach through a hymn like you're saying. Maybe not every stanza, but it was the old hymn, Jesus, what a friend for sinners. Mm-hmm. And there, those were saying, saving, helping, teaching, loving. Mm-hmm. And it was fantastic. It was wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. There's a little different angle. Um, we're in a good time, I think, as far as gospel-centered sources for music. I agree. It's really it seems like with that comes a song here and there from maybe sources that are not so reputable or less concerned, you know, whether, whether churches or the music that they're coming out of, but it's a good song. How, how do you view that? How do you handle a song that maybe is in itself pretty robust, but it's maybe not coming from the most reputable source or a source of concern, and your concern is your people might get turned on to bad sources of teaching or podcasting or whatever? Yeah. You know, that is a, is a unique problem that we have. It would be much simpler if we all just sang from hymnals still. <laughs> because then a song would have to pass a test of time before we had to deal with this. But now we're in this age of a digital hymnal, and it requires, it, it requires pastoral sensitivity to what you sing. So if you're in charge of picking the songs of your church and your pastor is not involved, he needs to be. I'll just say that. So, uh, um, so this is an interesting conversation because um, we, we, I, I sing songs by people that theologically I completely disagree with, but people who I think whose fingerprints will be in heaven with mine. You, you can become so um, isolationist where you can only sing the Psalms. And maybe that's not a bad thing. But, um, I mean, for example, we sang Come Thou Fountain of Every Blessing this morning. Robert Robinson denied the faith before he died. So should we then not sing that song because he died not professing faith in Christ? Or it is well. Like everybody loves to tell the beginning of that story. Nobody, it's very romantic, right? But the rest of the story is he joins a pseudo-cult and moves to Israel and dies doing all kinds of strange and weird things that we would all, that would be all over YouTube these days. And nobody thinks to consider those things. Um, We sing songs that were written out of the Catholic Church when we sing All Creatures of Our God and King or Be Thou My Vision. That melody was written early 19th century, but the text is 8th century. And so... um, it requires pastoral sensitivity. So here's the thing. If I was going to sing a song from a, a movement or an artist or something that I think our people may know of, um, I would just talk about it. 
I would talk about it. So Spurgeon, in his preface to his own hymnal, says, I'm commending, I, I'm, including, uh, I'm including hymns from authors all over the theological spectrum, and I'm not commending any of the things that they teach. What I'm commending to you is this text. He says, I think this text is edifying for the people of God to sing. So this is what I'm commending to you, are these three, four verses. And I think that's pastorally wise. Now, you know, in our day and age with, with uh, and media was, was prominent. It was the newspaper then, but in publications, like, but rampant publications. But here with the digital age, it's a little bit different. Um, I just think that requires a lot of sensitivity and care. And, and we need to be talking through these things as a, as a church family. Bob, Bob Coughlin's uh, article on this topic? He has two articles online um, from Sovereign Grace that I would really recommend calling, it's called Choosing Songs from Questionable Sources. And um, I had an interesting dialogue with Bob about some of those ideas, but he's really, he's captured that really nicely. So I would even say if that's something that you talk about as a church or as an elder, have that, maybe have that article handy. I think it goes to nice points. So um, let me just, from my own experience, speaking of that, we um, we do a lot of hymns at our church. Like the stuff that our grandparents love, that's what we sing. And um, a lot of it. And so we don't do a whole lot of new songs, especially from like, you know, radio and the machine and stuff. And so we did, though, I had, I, I remember I just hearing some, some stirrings in our musicians of like, well, we, we don't do those songs. And that makes me want to go do one of those songs. <laughs> and because here's the thing, I don't want our church to be known by what we're against. Uh, and I don't want to, we're not, the, we, I don't want to be known as the church that doesn't sing those songs. That's, that's a, that's what a terrible thing to be known for. And so um, I intentionally did one. And a drummer texted me on Tuesday when he got it, and it was this gif of, like, college girls at a uh, concert all crying. <laughs> and uh, he said, he said, Boz, somebody has uh, hacked our planning center account <laughs> and uh, put in this song. He goes, I imagine it was a high school girl. So, uh, and so we joked about that, and we still did the song on Sunday. And it was a good teaching opportunity with the band. It was, it was a song that was true and edifying, and so we sang it. We did it like twice and then never again, but. <laughs> but the point was made. Yeah, and I, out of service to our people, I just, uh, we don't want to become petty on those things, but we do want to be wise. Yeah. Yes, sir.
Oh, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> yeah, I just think we have enough melodies that are great. We don't need we don't need those. Oh, I will say, you know, there was there's a guy who did a really good you know, textually really great version of uh, the New Year's Eve song, Odd Sing Line. Have you heard this? Yeah. And um, I really like that. I don't think I've done it, but one of our, like our student ministry sings it. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think, again, just sensitivity toward like exactly what you're saying. Are people going to be able, is this going to edify people? Will this help fuel people's thoughts and love for Jesus or, or distract and so there it seems like it distracted. So I just think we've got to be aware of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I really like the, uh, the layout of the outline. Um, I remember studying this in seminary, and one thing that dawned on me is if you follow each mode, it's almost like telling or explaining the timeline of one's salvation example, God first speaks to man, man responds, and he realizes his sin and confesses and um, and now responds to that. Christ now illuminates his mind, and once a man is illuminated to see Christ, he now has the responsibility to go out and to, to, to respond and to rebut. The question is, um, has that ever, um, has that idea been presented to you? Has, has that ever crossed your mind? And if so, can you speak into that? Yeah. So is it testimonial? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely it can be. It's testimonial. It's proclamation. It's reminding. It's Psalm 103. It's all of those things. It is. We're just retelling the story every week. Just retelling the story of the gospel in in new ways with different lyrics and uh, different elements, uh, but the same story week after week. I think that's a fine way to think of it. Think about why God gave his people a calendar to begin with. It was so that they would remember the mighty works of God and proclaim them to the next generation. And I think that's all we're doing in this is remembering the mighty works of God, telling it to the next generation. Absolutely. Yes. So for us, that's uh, I do it um, really four different ways. So sometimes we'll do um, together do a confession. So we're reading something that either I've written or we're reading from a psalm or from a text uh, or from the Valley of Vision or any kind of thing. Uh, and so then we're together corporately, congregational reading a confession of sin. Um, m- most regularly coming out of singing about who God is, I'll, say, I'll just I'll kind of set up a confession, talk about what we're doing, or um, um, and just say, for, before we sing this next song, I'm going to give you a moment just to spend some time in prayer. And, um, and I'll, I'll mix up language here. And so, for, especially for non-Christians, so when Tim Keller talks about evangelistic worship and making the gospel the only offensive thing, so I'm using language that everybody understands. Would you take a moment and just... And just apologize to God for for things that you've done this week that have broken his command, uh, that have been sin. Um, So apologizing to God, that's not very theological language, is it? But isn't that what a confession is? 
Uh, so I, I want to be careful thinking through a person who's not a Christian, how they're hearing that. But the next week I'll use the word confession. And so it is the both and, right? I, I'm, I'm, I want to slow down and teach, but I also want to show the practice of confession, the practice of repentance. So th- in those times we're doing it by silence. Other times uh, a, a scripture is read followed by a, a moment of silence. And so the scripture kind of does the work there. And then the fourth way is it can be sung. Like, a, like a, and we're, so I'm trying to write hymns through these four movements, right? And so there, like I wrote a hymn called Christ the Sure and Steady Anchor that we'll sing in that spot. There's another hymn that we wrote called um, To the Cross I Cling. This says, no day in me, um, no day in my life has passed that has not proved me guilty in your sight. Like that's not a very American thing to sing. The best I have to offer are these filthy rags, yet you love me. So I'm trying to like think through how can, how can we sing our confession some as well? That way it doesn't feel like the same thing. I don't want people who are hunting that weekend. I'm in California. Can I use that example? <laughs> I mean like doing humanitarian aid out of town that weekend, <laughs> serving people. That's right. To at 11.15 be like, well, I can tell you what's going on down at the church house right now. You know, I don't want that. I don't want it to be that predictable. You can set your watch by it. I want to continue to be thinking, how can we freshly present the, the greatest story ever to our people? And I'm not, this is not light show and mirrors. This is just elements that are, that are found in Scripture. But just thinking through, how can, I, how can I, and just knowing our people, having sensitivity to that, how can I put those things in front of them? Yep. All right, I think I got to run. Is it 2.30? Yep. Hey, can I pray for you before we leave? Yeah. God, I thank you for my brothers and sisters who are here. And oh, how thankful we are for the hope we have in Christ. Don't let us get over it. Keep our hearts tender and low and hungry. We thank you for the joy of, of gathered worship. Help us to see evidences of your grace in every one of our gatherings this next Sunday. Open our eyes to all the good things you're doing and, and how thankful we are for your patience with us. Uh, we've messed up so much of this and um, still you love us. You haven't let us go. So we praise you for your grace. Let your word continue to inform everything we do. Let us be people of the book. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.